Let's hear God's word. And, and uh, before, we, before we read the passage, let's just pray. Lord, you have called us to be your children, but also your servants, your slaves, in the sense that we obey your will. And um, because your will is so wise, we know that it's, it's, it's not, we should not be doing anything other than obeying your will. So in that sense, we are your slaves. And as your slaves, there is a certain way that we should behave, a certain way that we should live. So that's what we're looking at today. And Lord, we pray that you would speak into our hearts, that you would, that you would um, be able to persuade our stubborn hearts to yield ourselves to you. And in doing so, show the world what a true human being is supposed to look like. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking... I'll just read this passage. It's a very short one. Um, and and uh, I can't really say it's a sweet one, but it's, but it's certainly short. <laughs> so slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favourites. Now we've been working through the household code section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and, and this is the third and final section of that code. It seems to be more difficult to apply to ourselves than the first two parts. After all, the relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents, uh, those relationships are still broadly the same as they have been throughout history. But slaves and masters? There are no lawful masters or slaves in most societies in the modern world. Lawful. The closest I've come in my own experience is in the Hong Kong domestic helper or maid. These women, uh, they're all women, uh, come, are actually employees. But because they're employed from the Philippines or Indonesia, uh, they live in their employer's home. Their employer tends to have a lot of power over them. The law in Hong Kong does provide limited protections, but they're their standard of living is dramatically lower than their employers. We, when we were living in Hong Kong, we were quite uncomfortable with the whole system of domestic helpers. And, uh, but many of our friends, locals and expats, had a maid. Some had two. But if we had had a maid, that's where she would have lived. That would have been her bedroom. It's, it's basically a cupboard... This is our kitchen. You can see the, the, some cupboards here. 
and that's our living room out there. And there's a cupboard there that goes back here that would have been her bedroom. It's long enough for her to lie down in. Looks like a linen cupboard. Yes, it's like a big linen cupboard. Um, <coughs> and that's actually quite a luxurious maid's quarters, that one. Now, to emphasise how different the institution of foreign domestic helpers or maids is from slavery, consider this. In Paul's time, slaves were property. They could be sold or rented. Their children belonged to their owner, the, the mother's children. They could not own anything themselves and they could be punished with anything up to death. In Hong Kong, and they didn't need a trial for that, by the way, because they weren't you know, entitled to the normal legal procedures. In Hong Kong, on the other hand, a maid can leave at any time, although unless she quickly finds a job, she'll have to leave Hong Kong, and is free to own whatever she wants, as long as it fits in her cupboard, and go wherever she wants on her day off. <clears throat> she does have one day off a week. Employers are not allowed to punish her in any way except by terminating her contract of employment. That doesn't mean that maids don't get abused, but that's against the law. In Paul's time, on the other hand, slaves were often, although far from always, motivated by a justified fear. Fear of punishment, fear of death. And in contrast, in Hong Kong, maids are motivated by financial opportunity. They're there to make money, much more money than they can make in the Philippines or Indonesia. And they almost invariably send a lot of that money back home to their families. So <clears throat> how do we relate slaves and masters to our current world? We don't even have maids here. As it turns out... Paul's advice in this passage is actually very relevant to us. You see, the distinguishing characteristic of Roman slaves was that they had to obey their masters. They had no choice in the matter. That was the difference between a slave and a freed man or a free man. So when Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, he's not really saying anything startling of course they're going to obey their earthly master with fear and trembling a, a sarcastic and uh, foolishly courageous slave might say well duh or not depending on Sultan, you know, whether they said that sort of thing in Rome <laughs> he might say it in Latin whatever the Latin equivalent is but Paul doesn't stop there instead he goes on to explain how a slave should obey their master. And in describing how a slave should obey their master, Paul reveals how we should live out his earlier direction, which applies to all of us to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So, Paul gives slaves perhaps six ways that should be expressing their obedience to their masters. Half of these ways talk about the motive the slaves should have and half talk about the attitude that they bring to their, to their service. 
So let's walk through these six ways. Now before, before we start, I want us to grapple with how this applies to us. You see, Christians are called to submit to one another out of our respect for Christ. The New Testament consistently exhorts us to humility and faithful service to one another. Not to live in tyranny over one another. So when Paul is instructing those Christians in the humblest of social stations in the Roman Empire, the slaves, how to serve others, that applies directly to us. We don't have to obey each other with fear and trembling, but the way we submit to one another is exactly the same as the way the slaves obey their masters. So the motives and the attitudes that we bring to that submission is what we can learn. So here are the six ways, and this is just the scripture divided up into six bullet points. The first way to serve others involves sincerity of service. Now the idea of sincerity in the New Testament refers to a heart and soul devoted to a single master. In other words, Paul is telling slaves that when they serve their earthly masters, they should dedicate themselves wholly to their service. Just as they do with Christ. There's to be no thought of working towards freedom or attempting to undermine their master or anything like that. That's a tough call, right? In the same way, when when we're submitting to someone, when we're submitting to each other, Jesus is not expecting us to do so on the basis that they'll then submit to us, for example, you know, some sort of quid pro quo arrangement. You submit to me, I'll submit to you. He's expecting sincere, single-minded service to one another without thinking about our angle. The second way focuses on our habit as human beings to act in an outwardly noble way while harboring selfish motives. Doing some service in such a way that it looks good on the surface but isn't properly done with care has always been distressingly common. So Sasha and I were just talking before the service about a good mechanic because I'm sure you're familiar with the experience of the mechanic, you know, having everything all nicely cleaned and polished up but you drive out of the shop and in a week it's whatever was fixed has fallen to pieces again or stopped working, right? So the service looks good on the surface but the mechanic didn't really care. Another aspect of this self-interest is when we're trying to benefit ourselves rather than genuinely benefit one another. As an, uh, 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 an IT manager or a manager in the IT industry, I became aware very early on of the counterproductive nature of performance rewards. Programmers, who are very lazy people, quickly maximise their reward-gathering behaviour and abandon all pretense of developing quality software for their customers. That always happens. So good IT managers 
don't offer performance rewards. And that's just a reflection of human nature. The third way to serve addresses our status as Christians. We're all slaves of Christ. We've submitted his, our lives to his lordship and so we must obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So that should be a powerful motive in itself to serve others, simply because Jesus tells us to do so. The fourth way to serve is to do it wholeheartedly. Now Paul has already said that we should serve with an undivided heart, But now he's adding that we should serve with our whole heart. So we shouldn't hold anything back. Remember that this is how slaves are supposed to serve their perhaps cruel masters. How much more wholehearted should we be in our service to one another? We should spend ourselves on one another, is what Jesus is saying. The fifth way is to serve enthusiastically, remembering all the time that this service is ultimately for God in addition to benefiting another human being. In his first letter, the Apostle John explains. He says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see. So when we work for others, we're really working for God. And finally, Paul reminds slaves that unlike their masters, God is watching every move that they make, every thought that they think. And all these selfless things that they do will be rewarded by our good God. That applies to us too. It should be a comfort and an encouragement to us that every time, every time we humble ourselves and serve one another, especially when it goes unnoticed, even by the person you're serving, God notices. And Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you see, Paul's advice has a lot to teach us about how to relate to one another. Now, what about masters? Masters uh, are supposed to have the same attitude that we've just been talking about towards their slaves. So you can see that Christian submission. Their earthly uh, positions, the position of master and slave, they have no bearing on their eternal relationship, which is based on their position in Christ. Both of them 
are slaves of Christ. In the end, we all must stand before Christ to be judged. We'll all, we'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we've done in this earthly body. And Jesus, to be frank, Jesus doesn't care a whit about our temporal positions here on earth. I could be the emperor of Rome and you could be the lowest slave and in Jesus' eyes, we're both equally his slaves if we're both Christians. The only specific advice Paul has for masters is related to a possible abuse of their position. The temptation to use threats to force their slaves to obey them. That's good advice for all of us, isn't it? We don't have slaves that we're tempted to force to obey, but emotional blackmail manipulative threats, a victim mentality, political correctness, oversensitivity to offence. All of these are modern techniques that we use to threaten people around us. To try to force them to comply to our will. Instead, if we want something from somebody... We should simply ask them and trust their integrity, which is what Paul is telling the masters to do with their slaves. Um, Sorry. Now, before we finish with the household code, there's one important feature of this set of relationships that I want to point out. And it relates to how these relationships can endure in a healthy and loving way. You see, each of these relationships have traditionally had significant power imbalances. Even today, children and employees have much less power in those relationships. Only marriage is more equal. Unfortunately, the increased incidence of divorce demonstrates that equality does not lead to endurance in a relationship. Paul doesn't even attempt to create equality because inspired by the Spirit, he knows that attempting equality merely leads to pride and grasping. But an unchecked power imbalance also leads to abuse. So what does Paul suggest to allow healthy, enduring relationships? In each of the more powerful roles in these three relationships, husbands, parents and masters, Paul insists that the the powerful person first submits themselves to Christ and second refuses to force their will on the person in the weaker role. For husbands, they're to lay down their lives for their wives, not to force their wives to lay down their lives for the husband. For parents, they are to instruct and discipline only in the Lord, not according to their own whims, and to pay careful attention to their children's emotional state, caring not only for their education and morals, but also for their feelings. 
and masters are required to recognize that they too are slaves and to never force their slaves to their will. How amazing. How amazing is that? How countercultural is that? Anyone that tells you that this household code comes from Greco-Roman culture obviously hasn't actually paid any attention to either the Bible or Greco-Roman culture. But there is a hidden element to this. How does a parent know their child is becoming angry? How does a master know their slave is unable to do something? How does a husband know when he needs to make a sacrifice for his wife? Well, they need to hear it. Paul says, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbours the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Husbands, parents and masters are not mind readers. Now, you may have noticed something missing from my face compared to last week. (laughs) My, My beard, or my lack of a beard now, is an example of an extremely minor form of the sacrificial love of a husband for his wife. (laughs) But I couldn't have known to make that sacrifice if Mabel hadn't expressed her displeasure with my beard. (laughs) So, big week there. You just have to hope that Rose likes your beard, Sasha. <laughs> so many years. <laughs> and and this, is, this is a problem with our culture. We're so afraid of conflict that we dare not complain. I mean, sure, we, we complain to the government and to business ad nauseum. And the modern idea of equality in marriage means we're constantly nagging each other and the child-parent relationship seems to be going the same way. But nagging and genuine complaint are two different things. We've become so practised at ignoring nagging. I don't want to eat that. Or, but I want to watch that YouTube. You can guess which ones those come from. Um, <laughs> that we can't hear genuine complaints. And what about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we able to offer genuine complaints to one another in order to allow healthy relationships to continue. I mean, that's such a countercultural action in our tolerance-obsessed, politically correct society that it requires genuine courage and strength. Last year, in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Relationships, we explored some of these uh, skills and ideas, and we will continue to invest in that this year as well. But until we can trust one another enough to both complain and submit to one another, our relationships will remain at the same level as the people of this world. So as we finish looking at Paul's household code, it's important to reflect, why is a household code important? It's really very simple. In the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus contrasts the external requirements of the Mosaic Law, like not committing murder, with the internal reality required by God, like not hating your brother. 
in between those two extremes stands your behaviour at home, a household code. Now, I remember getting a lift with one of the ministers of the church I attended at uni. I was shocked when this dignified man suddenly started swearing at the other drivers on the road. You see, I'd stepped from his church world into his household world, and he was not entirely the same man. If you want to know, um, I think that matters, right? Jesus calls us to be pure-hearted people. If you do want to know a person's character, step into their house in the middle of a difficult time. It's easy for me to look patient and caring up here, especially without a beard. <coughs> it's, it's so much harder when I've got a flu, when Italia's doing something crazy, when Mabel's struggling with her and my sink tap has just sprung a leak and is spraying water all over the kitchen. That's when you discover my real character, right? <laughs> you don't want to see me then. Nonetheless, that is our calling, genuine holiness. Paul follows the household code with a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He's saying, remember, we don't do this on our own. The mighty power of God is available to us if only we will accept it and use it. Put it on. That's what Graham will be preaching about next week. Putting on the armour of God. And that will be our final sermon in this series, Ephesians, The Secrets of the Church. So I'm looking forward to that. So let's, let's pray. Father, your word is so challenging. We fall so far short of your glory, of your holiness. And we know that in our hidden hearts, in, our, in, our, in the privacy of our own homes, we know who we are. But, but we know that you have given us your spirit to transform us. Lord, this church is a family. It's supposed to be the family of God. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So this household code applies here too. Here too we need to submit to one another. We need to love one another with a love that is, is scary. But you've shown us how to do that and you've given us the Holy Spirit to enable us. Lord, help us to accept your Holy Spirit. Strengthen us in your mighty power. Make us your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.